will you please welcome to the stage the writer of Swallows and Amazons, Andrea Gibb, and the director, Philippa Lothorpe. Congratulations both on the film. Um, I want to ask you, first of all, um, Philippa, with a book that is so anchored in a specific time and place and even class, what is it about Swallows and Amazons that you think has endured so well uh, in, in the, goodness, 40, 40 years since it was written, I think? 80. Sorry, uh, 80, 80 years since it was written, yeah. Yeah, well, I think um, <clears throat> we both feel that it, 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 the thing about Swallows and Amazons, it, it, it really does capture the essence of childhood, not only for the child who's watching it, but also for us grown-ups thinking about our own childhoods. And it has something really universal and timeless to say about childhood, and that's what I loved about it, and I think that's what makes it so enduring. No, I agree with that. I think it's, um, I think one of the things that Ransom does so brilliantly in his book is get right inside the head of the child, and that ability that children have to play and then to be immediately into the real world and to be dealing with the banal without even thinking about it. They segue from one to the other and it's so seamless. And I think he totally understands that. And that, that to us, I, I think we, we thought that was really qu quite lovely. And we sort of wanted to capture that. Andrea, when you went back to reread the book with a view to adapting it, was there anything that particularly jumped out at you as an adult reader that, um, that it does particularly vividly or, or, or well, well that you wanted to capture in the screenplay? I think that that thing about the way he writes his children and the way he understands how children play and the, the absolute joy of the imagination, I think, I think it's the way that he describes the imaginative world of the child. I think that was something that we were both really, really keen on. And also when you read the book, there are certain things in the book that are iconic that you just could not possibly have omitted because it would have been wrong to the essence of ransom. So those things obviously you want to keep. And then you also want to look at it for the contemporary audience and think, right, what do we have to do now to just, to just make this speak more to people who are watching it in 2016? I was really interested with the way that you use uh, elements of Arthur Ransom's own life and parlayed them into the character played by Rafe Spall. Um, because I think in the original book, he was based on Ransom insofar as he was secluded away in writing and writing and writing. Uh, but here, you know, you've drawn on elements of Ransom's past with MI6 and his connections with Russia as well. Um, was there ever any hesitancy over doing that as a, as a kind of a way of artificially souping up the novel at all? Or how, how did you kind of judge the, the balance between um, introducing new stuff and being faithful to the original text? I think with any adaptation, it has to become a, a being in its own right. And in all adaptations, things are enhanced or changed slightly to become this new being, which is the film. And both Andrew and I were fascinated by the fact that Arthur Ransom himself had, had been a spy. And this only came to light not that long ago, less than 10 years ago. And we just thought that if Arthur Ransom had been writing it um, when he hadn't been under the Official Secrets Act, he probably would have used his own life like that. So we did a lot of research. We went to the National Archives and looked at all of the, their stuff, and it just became this rather lovely gift, mm. we thought, to mm. our adaptation. And we did lots of research. We, we even used his real code name. So S76 is the Arthur Ransom code name in real life as well as in our play. And, in the book, there's a rather slight story strand about some robbers who case out the houseboat, follow him around, ask questions of the charcoal burners, and then eventually steal 
and rob his work from the boat. And that's quite a, a little thin story strand that I'd even forgotten when I reread the book. And we thought, what better way to kind of enhance that and add to the excitement by using Arthur Ransom's real life and making the robbers spies as well. And the thing you're doing there is you're, 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 being, you're still being incredibly true to the authenticity of the original source material. And all you're doing is going, Arthur Ransom put himself into his novels as Captain Flint. He was a spy, therefore Captain Flint is a spy. And it felt like quite an easy step, actually, for us, you know. In terms of, uh, because the, the characters in Swallows and Amazons were based on a real family that Ransom knew when he was in the Lake District, um, what was your working relationship like with that family while you were um, both working on the film? Because I know at, um, at an early stage when you announced you were changing the, the name of the, the younger daughter to Tatty, I think you just, you just have to do that now. I don't understand how the film could work if you hadn't done. But they were quite kind of upset about that at the time, but now I gather they're really delighted with the, with the outcome. So. When you have that kind of um, issue of faithfulness, not just to the work, but also to the people um, that it was based on, uh, how did you negotiate that? I think it's, it's um, fair to say that Arthur Ransom uh, was in, rather than based his ideas on the Altonian family, he was inspired by them because he himself changed them. So the eldest of the Altonian children was called Tacky and was a girl. And so he changed that person to John. So he adapted those people to, to his own work. Um, and for us, what was absolutely delightful a week ago was that the, lots of the Altoonian descendants of those four iconic children came to the screening and uh, absolutely loved the film. And yes, there was a bit of consternation about the name change, but we debated it long and hard, didn't we? And we, we took advice from all sorts of between ourselves, you know, we all the different financiers, and we, we really debated whether we should change it. And then we just felt in a modern day where you've got kids have got access to the internet and can Google anything, perhaps Googling Titty might not be yeah, the, so the, fortunate. The name of the character in the original book was Titty and, uh, rather than Tatty. So. But also the, the other thing that we discovered, rather, it, it's almost like sometimes we were handed things that were, as Philippa calls them, gifts. We discovered that the, the, the little girl that he had he had been inspired by to be Titty in his novel. Actually, she picked her own name, her own name was Mavis, and she decided she wanted to be called Titty after a poem which had a character called Titty Mouse. And it so happens that there was also a character called Tatty Mouse. So we just, we just picked the other mouse. <laughs> and it just seemed like really great. Yeah, so our decisions in, in, in all respects yeah. had a root in authenticity, didn't totally. they, Andrew? We were very, Adamant that whatever changes we made, we had to find a proper, authentic reason for making them. And something that he that that sprang from Ransom or Ransom's own life or Ransom's own imagination, if you like. That that was he was our spirit guide in that, all the way through. I think in terms of the authenticity of the film as well, something that I was really taken by was that I mean you've you've got a scene here of a fish being gutted that's relatively vivid for a children's film nowadays, I think. You've got adults who smoke pipes and who smoke cigarettes. Again, that's quite rare in children's films, family films now. Um, when you're making the, the, you know, the kind of creative trade-off between that, are we going to be faithful to the period or are we going to make this in a way that the BBFC will probably be more gentle on? Why did you decide to go with the smoking and the fish gutting? Because I mean, I, I, think, I don't think the BBFC have published their adjudication yet, but Studio Canal told me that it's, it's going to be, the film will be a PG. Yeah. Um, so, Obviously, you know, you as kind of a commercially, um, you, know, you can you 
can expect a, a wider audience for a new film um, just by the nature of the certificate. So why did you decide to go with, uh, go with the Smoky and the Fish? I think it was again about making it feel as real as we possibly could. And having started off at my life as a filmmaker in documentaries, my, my tendency is always to try and find real truth and authenticity in everything that we do. And, you know, mothers did smoke in the 1930s and, and, and there's nothing more delightful than gouging out some guts of a fish for children. And I think it was that wanting to show mm. things as they really are. And that, that takes me on to the things like the sailing. The children who play John and, and, and Nancy, those kids had to learn to sail to, to take on these roles. And neither, none of them had sailed before. They had sailing lessons. They did everything for real. All that sailing that you see in there, they are really doing it. And we are really skating around after them on a camera boat trying to capture it. But that was very important to me, that we, it, felt, it felt real and true. Was there ever any question of not shooting in the Lake District? No. No. <laughs> no. no. Never. How could you make it? I mean, the, the, the Lake District, isn't it? It's, it's, it's another character, yeah, it's character in the film. Yeah. And you have to film it there. It, it, you wouldn't be able to get the atmosphere, the, the, you know, the tiny little human beings in their little boat going out into this epic landscape with these ancient mountains and ancient deep lakes. It just wouldn't have the same atmosphere. And also, he, he hit the Lake District. He, it, it is beloved by him. You know, it is his... And the places that he's, that he's reimagined in his book exist. So for the people in Cumbria and in the Lake District, the, this is theirs. It is theirs. And for us to have, to have done anything other than that would have been disrespectful. How much did you visit the area while you were in pre-production? Loads. <laughs> I think I lived there for months. I got to know it really well. I got very carsick going around all the little winding <laughs> lanes with the location manager. It was one of the most beautiful places to work. And I've, I've been to the Lake District before, but going again for this and looking at it with a, a, a filmmaker's eye, and a visual eye, you think, my goodness, why doesn't everybody come and film here? Except you can't get a signal. <laughs> Which is a bit trying. The, 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 the landscapes are so otherworldly. It's, it's like what you might get in Lord of the Rings or in, in New Zealand, but they are otherworldly, aren't they? They're, they're very magical, those landscapes. What really surprised me in the film was that it, the landscapes don't have this kind of chocolate box, nostalgic mm. quality mm. at all. They are, they do have that uh, mysteriousness effect that you've spoken about. Um, when you're deciding on the visual tone of the film, did you ever think, you know, we want to make this a little bit sweeter and a little bit no, more sugary? No, not at all, no. We made a really early decision that whatever the weather, whatever it was doing, whether it was thunder and lightning, whether it was rain or cloud, we would absolutely go with it and film it. Because the, the, there's so much drama there in the weather. We did not want it to be all sunny and pretty the whole time because it isn't like that in the Lake District. It, the weather changes every 10 minutes yeah. anyway. Doesn't it? But the, but the lowering clouds and the greyness and the stormy weather and the rain is just as dramatic as the beautiful sunshine to me. I love that during the carnival sequence, you've got the bunting flapping incredibly hard in the wind. And just, I think it's the first time I've seen bunting used in a film as a the, kind of attention builder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah exactly. there was a lot of there was a lot of wind except when you needed it. Isn't it yes. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes, sometimes we set off to do an exciting sailing becalmed. sequence and it would <laughs> yeah. drop like that. Uh, but no, we, that was a very important decision that we made that whatever was happening with the weather, we would use it. So, for instance, when the children put up the tents, 
in real life, it actually chucked it down with rain. And I'd got Andrew to cut out I had the rain, had rain from the script because I said, we'll never the, get rain no, bars into this bit. We won't of the get it. We won't, oh, but lake. it'd be great if it rained the first time they put their tents up and then it absolutely and then it, poured the down. The opened and it poured down, and the children who were the, uh, acting in the film absolutely loved it. It made them all hyper and excited. So, all of that I just captured what That's they great. were doing, all that squeaking and screeching was them <laughs> loving it. Just getting wet. I want to ask you about casting the children because they don't, I think, both of the boys, that's their first screen credit for either of them. And, and, and the girls, I think it's a second feature credit each. So they are relatively inexperienced, um, but the performances that you've drawn out of them, I think, are absolutely extraordinary. Um, how did you go about finding them? And how, in terms of their lack of experience, did you direct them compared to the, the adult members of the cast? Um, I, I work with a very good and lovely casting director called Shaheen Baig, and I've worked with her a lot before. And we use workshops to find the children. I, I must have seen about 800 children to find these children. And I wanted them to be family. I wanted them to look similar and behave like a family, both sets. And we did lots of workshops down on the south coast where the Walker children come from, and other workshops up in the lakes where the uh, Blackets, the Amazons, come from. And it was very important for me to have children who felt real, who, who weren't actory at all. And in fact, the girl who plays Tatty, the only thing she's done before is with me. She did Side with Rosie, which I directed, and I just found her in a primary school in Gloucestershire and asked her to come back and audition because I thought she might be interesting. And Orla, who plays Susan, I think she'd done one tiny little 10-minute film. That's it. So they were really inexperienced. But to me, they brought so much freshness to that role and so much sort of vivid life. And off stage, they got on mm. amazingly, didn't they? Mm. They just bonded and behaved like brothers and sisters. It's almost like they had their own wee adventure. They, they're, you know, they were having an adventure on screen and an, e and, in, and an equally good adventure off screen with each other, wasn't it? Yeah. And they, yeah. they behaved. They, you, you could, you'd watch them and they'd be cavorting and they'd be, they'd be. They didn't really bicker very much, but they did tease each other in the way that siblings do. And it was just fantastic to see that, I think, and they bring that on screen. But, but I would have to say that Dane, who plays John, was a very reluctant actor, because we, we noticed him in a workshop and invited him to come back and meet us. And his dad drove him all the way from Yeovil to Portsmouth, and then he refused to get out of the car. <laughs> and his dad drove him all the way back home, and Shaheen and I were sitting there saying, where's that Dane? He's, he was amazing in that workshop. And we rang him up and persuaded his dad to bring him to London. And because he was, he was 14 when we were doing that, which is an awkward age for teenagers, isn't it? Um, he was very shy about the idea of even being an actor. But my goodness, when you look at him on there, you think, what a natural, mm -hmm. what a natural boy. <clears throat> Andrew, I want to ask you about writing the relationship between John and Roger. Because, you know, at the heart of the film, there's this missing father figure. Mm. Um, and there's a kind of an almost reluctant adoption of those duties by John. And um, I think, you know, particularly in scenes like the scene where they're uh, in, in the bedroom together at the end and there's that moment of reconciliation are just so beautifully, beautifully written. And, and, and you. you know, these are, I, I think, themes that are, they're sort of there in the original book, but they required a bit of teasing out where the children seem to be a little bit more indestructible. I think, I think, it's, I think that it's absolutely true. One of the things, and, and this is sitting entirely with Philippa and the whole search for truth and authenticity is that you, when you're write, writing children, even if they're in the 1930s, children are, the way children are, the way children behave, it's quite, it's universal. And so what you're looking for is the emotions and the human behavior, which it, it, that doesn't change by depending on period. 
And when I first read the book, I was really struck by... Well, when I first went back to the book as an adult, I was struck by John being having one foot in the child child's world and one foot in the adult world. And this whole underlying kind of melancholy about the lack of a father figure, because the Blackets don't have a dad. And then suddenly you realise this is mid-war, mid between the two wars. All the men had gone off to war and there was probably had probably been killed. Or, so there is a sort of sense of an underlying melancholy which really spoke to me. And with Susan as well taking on some of the maternal roles, or, or reluctantly in our version, but, you know, that whole notion that, that children have to step up to the adult plate, if you like, and that, that they have to do it, they know they have to do it, but at the same time they sort of don't want to. So it seemed perfect to me and to Philippa that we explore that whole notion of a boy on the cusp with this little boy who still has this ability to play. You know, he can he's still a child. He can do what he Roger is he's free and unbound, if you like. Whereas John is learning the he's learning about constraint and he's learning about responsibility and he's learning about justice, which are all very strong themes in the book. And I think it was it just felt to us that that was a really important relationship. There are certainly some reactions from uh, Roger in the film, where he just looks so emotionally wounded at stuff that John has said. Now, how do you get that kind of, because it, I mean, to me, to, to watch it, it was kind of heart-wrenching. You know, I've got two sons myself, and I know that face, and it's not yes. a good one. How did we get Bobby to do yeah. that? I think the thing with casting is, it's if you choose the right people, it's 90% choosing the right people. I, I, I would love to claim it all myself of, as being a marvellous director, but I think if you, can, if you can find the right children and then make the conditions right and then feel really taken care of and, and safe, I think you have to make actors safe, whether they're adults or children, actually, to be and, and, and inhabit and make emotional connections with the situation they're in. And Bobby is an extraordinary little boy in that he's able to do that. If he feels safe, he can access those emotions very easily and that is really down to him I just had to make him feel safe choose him in the first place make him feel safe and then he he did that by himself you know he 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 can cry uh, when he wants to and you know he's a quite mm. quite amazing little boy isn't he mm. amazing I want to open this to questions from the floor uh... was it a real island yes <laughs> it was a real island we filmed it on Derwent water, and it, it, it is an, a big island. Does that make it the real island? It's not the real, well. We well, the, well, there wasn't our real island, but the, the, one of the ones that Ransom he was. Thought. He would have known that island. That island is, was bigger and it just set behind the jaws of Borrowdale, so that that setting was fantastic, and it was easy for us to land on, because the kids had to do all that landing on the island and setting off on their own. So it was it was good for that. Was it um, was it fun make? What was the funnest um, bit making? What was the funnest what bit? What was the funnest bit? Well, it was all really good fun, but the funnest bit for me was doing the sailing, because I had to go in a camera boat, and my family know I'm really hopeless at sailing and don't really like it. So I had to make myself brave, go on the camera boat, and then follow them around on the lake. And watching the children sail and do all those turns about and try and shoot it was really exciting and sometimes a bit scary. When the people got hurt in the film, did they actually do it or did they just did it gently and then they pretend to fall? 
Yes, they would, we would never really hurt people. Do you mean like when Susan gets knocked by the, in the boat when she gets knocked? And in the plane with in the anchor. In the plane. No, they didn't get hurt. They didn't. Do you know what happened with Rafe and the, the two men playing the spies? When we filmed that, they got terrible giggles. <laughs> and they could not stop laughing. They kept sniggering and giggling. So I'm amazed we ever got that scene. <laughs> yeah, just that. Are you planning to make a second film? Um, like, like Amazon... Uh, Swallows in the Amazon 2? Or... <laughs> down to you, <laughs> um, I think we're going to see how this one goes down first. But there is a series of books that you can draw on. If you, there there if you is. There are. There's yeah, yeah. twelve. <laughs> there we are. And they get progressively more. I mean, big, big they eventually. become more fantastical. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. Uh, hello. Um, I wanted to ask about um, the relationship between the kids in the film, because in the book they all got along marvellously and as well as being incredibly capable at everything that's thrown at them, they're, they're very united as a, as a sort of team, but there's much more tension in the film. What, what was the idea there and, and, and why? Well, we just, I mean, basically we wanted it to feel, again, to feel real and to feel truthful. And actually, children aren't perfect. Uh, everything they're fabulous but they're not perfect and also siblings do bicker and they do fall out and they do they do sort of have that relationship which is which basically they they can squabble but at the same time there is this amazing bond underneath it that always pulls them back so we wanted our children to start off as this sort of slightly not not a coherent little unit and for that that unity to grow so by the end when they win the day they're like this fantastic little team so that's a kind of cinematic journey if you see and i think that's that was the idea but it, but it was also based on wanting to provide real real role models and real children that children in the audience could completely identify with I mean, we're hoping that there'll, be, that there'll be kids that will want to be Roger and want to be Tatty and want to be Susan, want to be Nancy Blackett, want to be John. That's, I think that's what we wanted, wasn't it? To speak to as wide an audience range as possible. I'm sure all the children who might want to make a film would like this question answered too, which is, um, did you go to the BBC and say, look, we'd like to make this film and persuade them? Or did you just sit at home and wait for them to come to you. How did you get this fantastic opportunity? Um, well, it was developed with BBC yeah. Films from the start. So it's really down to them and to Nick Barton, who was the producer of the film, one of the producers of the film, whose idea it was. And he, he took it to the BBC. And it's, it's their commitment to it, BBC Films, for holding on to the idea of it for quite a long time and then the BFI coming and joining them and then Studio Canal coming in as this sort of trio of fantastic financiers and I must say we've been so lucky haven't we Andrea mm. to enjoy the support of BBC Films and the BFI I mean, they've Studio been Canal they've been amazing because it is it is a little David and Goliath situation let's face it I mean our film is a, a small budget compared with the BFG or Finding Nemo all these ones and yeah, it, it's holding its head up high at the moment and, and getting fantastic reactions. So for, their, for us as filmmakers and, and writers to have the support of those people is very, very important. And BBC Films have been there since day one. And, then, and now it's to see the way that Studio Canal are treating it with such care and, and, and being so wonderful with it has been amazing for us, hasn't it? Because yeah, it, it it's, it's just lovely. 
say your producer has been gnawing away at this film for almost 10 years, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, I first met him when he asked me to read the book, and it was in 2007. And he first read this book when he was 12. And he must be... Well, I don't want to say how old he is. He's, he's an elderly gentleman. So he's held the light. He's held the, carried the torch. He but has. along the way, we've had some fantastic support. Yeah. I mean, it, that, that book made him want to sail. And I think there, are, there, there must be lots of children who are now adults who were inspired by that book. I think Dame Edith McCarthy, have I got her name right? The, the sailor, Dame Edith McCarthy, not Edith MacArthur. She's not well, her. You know who yes, I mean? Yes, Ellen. Yeah, she Ellen. She, 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 she yeah. became a sailor because of reading Swallows and Amazons. So that book has, it, it, it's, it's very inspiring, I think. It's, it's a can-do book, isn't it? The children go out and they, and they can do and they have an adventure. And, and I think that's great. Um, yep, no. I just wanted to ask um, about... Uh, the, the, the sort of Andrew Scott character and what you do with Captain Flint and it's got, there's got some quite sort of mean, scary moments in the film. And did you ever point, have people sort of slightly worry about how dark you were taking it for a children's film or, or you pushed it too dark and pulled back or felt that, that you were softening it? Those, how did you make those decisions? Because I think it's very effectively scary but just on the right lines, which I thought was brilliant. But I just wondered if that was a line that came easily. I think it did really. I mean, I've got an 11-year-old son and a 19-year-old daughter. So I've got that. I've grown up watching, as a parent, grown up watching loads and loads of family films with them. And children can take dark. They can, can't they? I mean, you can think of, of, of other wonderful films like the BFG and, and, and books by Roald Dahl. Children like dark, and I think they like scary. And the other and, thing that we talked about and I think is really important for the, the whole film as well is about tone and point of view and this was something that we were very keen on that anything that happened out with the main thrust of the, the narrative had to be generated by the children themselves and so therefore they own the world they own the universe so we meet the subplot, if you like, the spies, when they meet them. And that was a, that was a, joint, that was a decision that we took as, because tone and point of view is everything. So I think it's a tone, a tonal thing as well, which, which we talked mm. about a lot, didn't we? Yeah. Does the film remind you of anything when you were young? It does. It reminds me of running around in fields and paddling in streams and going up, I went to Yorkshire on holiday, I didn't go to the Lake District, but I was, we, we were always in the Yorkshire Moors, and I was always running off on my own, and was allowed to disappear. <laughs> and I remember sitting there thinking, but nobody knows where I am. And that really wonderful feeling of people being in the big world and nobody knowing where you are. But our children, my children don't get to do that. I'm always tethering, you know, we always know where our children are, and that was, uh, that was a very inspiring thing for me to make this film to make the children feel that nobody knew where they were. They were all on their own, and how exciting that is. Do you ever get to be on your own like that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea, did you write Kelly MacDonald's character as Scottish so that you could kind of... The, the fact that she was very free-rangey with her kids was, ex was quickly explicable. Yeah, not very Scottish, though, <laughs> being no, free-rangey. Well, no, not now. But no, not the, now. The fact that she had been then, growing up in yes. the Highlands oh, and yes, everyone yes, I, Yeah, in the book, she grew up in... Um, Australia. She, so she wasn't English in the book anyway. And when you have an actress like Kelly MacDonald, it seems, it seems ridiculous not to let her be herself because she's, 
she's so beautiful and wonderful and tender in the film that actually her own voice coming through, I think just, we, we, we felt just added that really mm -hmm. sort of. So yes, I'd say the fact you've got her, I think you use her. In the, in the book, the mother talks about how she grew up in the outback in yeah. Australia and had this free life. And, and when we cast Kelly, we just thought we would let her have own the Scottish yeah, didn't we? Yeah, exactly. Character. Yeah. Be that. Um, thank you for, it, for this film. Um, remind me of the railway children and films like that. Are there other um, children's stories that you would like to adapt um, if this one becomes as successful? Gosh. Um, I would have loved to have done The Secret Garden, but I, there is already a film of that, and I think it's being done, isn't it? I don't know. I, I love The Secret Garden. Um, Little Women, I would have loved to have done, but they've all been done, really. So, yeah. We'll I mean, have to get our fingers. fingers yeah, we'll think about that, I think. What happened to the, like, the things that were stolen? Because in the book, they get Titty finds them, but... Do you mean the things that the spies take? Yes. He got them back, didn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. They get loaded onto the plane and then they get taken off the plane when the Russians get captured. Well, that is unfortunately all we have time for today. Andrea and Philip, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.